The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of government to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Of all the documents that I use in my work at ICSC, the most important are the Climate Change Reconsidered series of reports of the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change. These reports summarize thousands of studies from peer-reviewed scientific journals that either refute or cast serious doubt on the science of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The beauty of the Climate Change Reconsidered documents is that whether the topic is temperature, extreme weather, sea level, the effects of carbon dioxide, life in the oceans, or the benefits of fossil fuels, every subject is addressed in two ways. A heavily referenced detailed chapter for experts and an easy to read summary for lay people. People can check out these wonderful reports at climatechangereconsidered.org. Jay, I think you know which group is responsible for the editing and publishing of the Climate Change Reconsidered series of reports, right? Very definitely. It's the Heartland Institute, which is certainly the leading voice in refuting the climate change fraud. And Diane and Joe Bast were active in assembling it and editing every bit of it. And you were not exaggerating when you said there are thousands of articles referenced in it, primarily refuting all the lies that our listeners hear pretty much daily in the mainstream media. Uh, James Taylor is now the president of Heartland and was active there the whole time these books were written. And he is uh, carrying on the fabulous work that Joe and Diane Bast in putting these books together. I use them all the time. And we're so fortunate to have James Taylor, the president of the Heartland Institute now as our guest today. And Tom, you go ahead and Introduce James. Yeah, sure. James Taylor is the president of the Heartland Institute and director of their Arthur B. Robinson Center for Climate and Environmental Policy. James received his bachelor's degree from Dartmouth College, where he studied atmospheric science and majored in government, which are a fantastic combination, of course, for the work he's doing now. He also received his Juris Doctorate from Syracuse University. James has presented energy and environment analysis on CNN, Fox, MSNBC, PBS, CBS, ABC, all over the country. He's also been published in virtually every major newspaper in America. James is a regular presenter at conferences across the world, and both Dr. Lair and I have had the privilege of appearing on many panels with James at Heartland counter-conferences to the UN events. So welcome to the show, James. 
Thank you so much, Tom and Jay as well. It's such a pleasure to be on with the two of you. And I have to say that ICSC is doing a fantastic job bringing scientific truth uh, to the people. So thank you for all that you do. Yeah, thank you. Well, and I use those reports constantly too, and your other work as well. Well, the work that James does at one conference after another really astounds me because he is, and I don't want to make him blush and I'm not exaggerating, he's easily the best debater I have ever heard on stage. He's uh, able to calmly listen to an erudite liar tell all the scams about climate and just calm and coolly refute them. I'm not as calm that way. I don't suffer fools gladly, so I have great admiration for what he's able to do. Now, James, last week we had as our guest Donald Ken Kendall of the Heartland staff talking about the insidious ESG program sweeping the nation. You have a former state legislator, Betty Grandy, fighting this battle state by state. How has she been so quickly able to be successful in carrying that fight to the states? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, Betty Grandy is a former state legislator out of North Dakota. So she knows the turf. She knows the lay of the land in state legislatures. And what we have right now, you described it very well, Jay, it's insidious. ESG stands for Environmental and Social Governance Scores. It's an agenda by which the World Economic Forum and others have planned for a long time to subvert free market economies to change what has always been shareholder capitalism into what they call stakeholder capitalism. In other words, it's not the people who own the business who decide how the business is run. It's going to be the people that they claim are affected by your business, which are their chosen uh, uh, special interest groups and leftist causes. So we've been fighting back in the state legislatures on this agenda. Betty Grandy has alerted the legislators themselves to the threats to businesses in all the states, as well as our individual choices as a land of the free. And uh, with Betty's background, we know how to take the fight to the enemy. Well, five years ago, most people had never heard the term ESG. Now it's very prominent, but I'm still guessing that a large percentage of our audience does not fully understand uh, when I say it is insidious. So spend a moment describing uh, just how this ESG score is used in such a negative manner. Right. So typically it is the large financial institutions, BlackRock, Vanguard, the largest banks, as well as the large insurers that have colluded together. And the collusion is key because they must collude together or else one or two major entities would break from this and make a lot of money. But what they say is this, from now on, we are not going to give loans based on traditional factors such as profitability and market share potential. Instead, we are going to give businesses and even individuals an ESG score. And that ESG score, environmental and social governance, is primarily broken down among climate change factors. That's the environmental component. Do you or your business have a large carbon footprint? If you do, or even if you don't, 
Are you giving much of your money to carbon reduction programs, such as the ones that Al Gore has run in the past? Also, the social governance component, is your board of directors comprised of the right percentages of minorities? Do you give money to leftist causes across the board? And now what this means is that you have a small group, an oligarchy of the largest financial institutions and the largest insurers who are making an end run around our democratically elected representatives. And they are the ones setting policy in, the, in this country. They are the ones who are saying, yes, you must enact climate change programs. Yes, you must reduce your carbon dioxide emissions, even if Congress has not passed a law to do so. They are the ones who seek to shape society based on their aggressive, insidious ESG agenda. Mm. You know, one thing that strikes me and something to emphasize is the business of going around government. I mean, they haven't succeeded in getting what they want by going through the democratic process. So they're actually forcing it through corporations. Is that right? Absolutely. And for example, here in the United States, uh, in North Dakota, in Texas, it has been the wildcatters. It has been the small drillers of oil, natural gas producing, not through ExxonMobil or Chevron or the big corporations, but these are the ones who have used horizontal drilling technologies and fracking technologies to bring about the fracking revolution that has, well, had, because it's no longer the case, brought America to energy dominance under the Trump administration. Now what you have is with the encouragement of government, you have the largest lenders and insurers that will not allow these energy producers to do business. They come to Betty Grandy, who you mentioned earlier, and they say, we cannot get loans to go out and engage in this energy production project that we know is there, that under any other circumstances we would get loans for. And if they have the money, if they're self-financed or able to get money otherwise, they also need insurance and the large insurers will not insure them. So they do not need, they meaning the environmental left, no longer need to get Congress to pass a law, the president to sign a law to shut down our economic freedom and our individual liberty in energy production because they have this small oligarchy, small number of corporations in this oligarchy that are imposing that policy on the American people in an end run around our elected representatives. Well, you've yeah. just given all the reasons why Heartland has done something that no other organization to my knowledge in the country has done. And that is developing truly an anti-communist center in this nation. Now, all the things they're doing, working their way around democracy and creating the oligarchy that you so well described is an effort to make this essentially a communist country, although your organization and others tends to be more comfortable with using the word socialism. Uh, but in fact, it is a communism. And we'd like to hear more about your, your center working against socialism, which I will continue to call communism. Right. Thank you, Jay. Well, we have had for a number of years our Stopping Socialism Center, and we began this particular center just a year or two, I believe it was, before AOC was elected into Congress. So at the time, nobody paid much attention 
because they said, well, socialism, you're overstating the cause against people on the political left. We're not fighting socialism. Well, yeah, we, we knew that we were. And the socialist wing has grown stronger and stronger in the Democratic Party. And this is something that we were pointing out over the past five, six, seven years. And it's grown more in intensity, it being the socialist wave. And Jay, you're very right. We use the term socialism because that is the term that is being used by the left to lure young people, especially, but people of all ages to their side because it sounds warm and fuzzy. You're here protecting all the people. But socialism inevitably leads to communism, becomes communism. And this has been the case historically. This has been the case without exception. Now, some people on the socialist side will say, well, wait a second. Scandinavia, Sweden, Denmark, these are socialist countries and look how nice it is there. No, they're not socialist countries. They're capitalist countries. They're free market countries. In many ways, when you have organizations like the Cato Institute and Heritage that rank free market economies around the world, they rank as more free market than the United States. What they are is a free market economy with a very generous safety net. But having a safety net for people who don't succeed is not the same as socialism, which is by definition, government owning and controlling all aspects of the economy and the property in the economy that uh, uh, in, entails businesses and other uh, enterprises. In case our listeners are concerned that both of us so easily use the term communist or communism, let me read you a quote from the leader of the American Communist Party at a rally at Madison Square Garden in 1944. There, Alexander Trachtenberg said, when we get ready to take the United States, we will not take you under the label of communism. We will not take you under the label of socialism. We will take the United States under labels we have made very lovable. We will take it under liberalism, under progressivism, under democracy, but take it we will. So this has been going on for a very long time. Absolutely. And unfortunately, we saw this with Fidel Castro when the American media and the media throughout the democratic nations cheerleaded and applauded as Fidel Castro kicked out, overthrew by military force, a government that was very friendly with the United States. And yes, there were problems with that government, but it was nowhere near as antithetical to freedom, to human rights as the Castro regime was. And, and Fidel Castro did not talk about being a communist. He talked about land reform. He talked about empowering people. And look what happened. The same thing happened in Venezuela, Hugo Chavez. We've seen this Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. This happens all around the world. They come under banners of progressivism, of democratic socialism, inexorably, it becomes communism. 
Mm -hmm. Did you see on in the, on the cover of the Epoch Times a week or two ago, there was a huge demonstration, a picture of a huge demonstration against socialism. And as you read in the article, what you find is the current leader of Venezuela arrested the organizers of the protest. So, I mean, this seems to be a common ingredient that they get to a certain point where they realize, whoa, this is pretty bad. But then it's too late because they get arrested for protesting. Yes, and if you were going to enact and impose a socialist economic system where government owns and controls all of the property, all the economic activity, you cannot have freedom of political views. You cannot have a free political society because then people can and will vote to that out of power. And mm -hmm. from the perspective of the socialists, what's the point of being a socialist country, if it's only going to last for a year or two, the point is they, they need it to be permanent. So inevitably, swiftly, rapidly, as soon as they gain the reins of power, our freedoms are quickly eradicated so that they can maintain their socialist grip and it becomes communism. Mm -hmm. Let me throw in a, an idea that I think few of our listeners have uh, heard before. It appears that the billionaires in this country, the Jeff Bezos and the Mike Bloomberg and the Mark uh, Zuckerberg, they all are truly have become communists. And it's really doesn't surprise me at all. And that's what I want to explain to our audience and make it clear. If you have billions of dollars, you have everything money can buy. What do you have to look forward in life to achieve? And the answer is power. And as capitalists, they cannot achieve power. You can't take over a capitalist country, but you can take over a communist country. So these billionaires truly do become communists because it suits their need for striving for some new acquisition. And they actually, now listen to what I'm just now about to say. They really believe they can run your life and my life and our country's life better than we can because after all, they have acquired billions of dollars, they feel, through their own intelligence. Therefore, they're smarter than everybody else in the room and they deserve to take over the world. This is what's happening. This accounts for almost every jet setter that went to Davos last week to plot the takeover of the world. And as was said in 1944 at Madison Square Garden, not as socialists or communists, but as liberals and progressives and folks that can run our lives better than we can. Jay, I think you may have hit it right on the head. And it's something that shows your brilliance because I have struggled with this question for quite some time. It used to be, stereotypically, when I was growing up in the 1970s and 1980s, that the heads of big business were at least painted as these capitalist conservatives. They were, quote, the man, end quote, that the system that the people had to fight against. And I've wondered, how is it that in today's day and age, in today's economy, in today's political culture, Every time you have a corporation that attains massive power, that 
gains the power not just to dominate its own market, but then to use that power nefariously if it so chooses, such as big tech censoring free market speech online, such as ESG, not talking about lending money to uh, businesses that promise the best returns, but imposing their own agenda. How is it that they're all run by people who are very far to the left politically? And I haven't been able to figure it out. I think you may have hit it on the head. So, Jay, you're on the game. Well, I appreciate that, James. And I think I have also, and I'm beginning to write about it as often as I can. But back to the great work that you and Heartland are doing. We've read that you try to positively influence all 8,400 state legislators in this country. How do you do this? And why do not other organizations do as much in this area? Well, thanks for pointing that out, Jay. Uh, What we do at Heartland and what we've done since almost our beginning is we have focused on state legislatures as much as the political debate topics, the issues that are going to be on One American News or Newsmax or Fox News or CNN or MSNBC may have international and or national flavor. It's at the state level that when you think about it, most of the laws that affect us and that restrict our freedom are implemented. During COVID, yes, it was a national and international debate, but what were the restrictions put upon us? They were largely put in place by governors who used, quote, emergency powers, end quote, to stifle our ability to even go out and get fresh air. It was at the state level. This is the case in so many topics. So here at the Heartland Institute, we have invested in a government relations department where each and every day they are in touch with personally on the telephone, in person if they can, through emails and text messages with state legislators around the country. We provide them information that we produce. We provide them information that others produce. Uh, We're not trying to make this all about Heartland. It's all about freedom. And with those connections, what happens is every January, the state legislatures, they vary from state to state, but they typically are in session from January through about May. From January through May, we are invited to testify throughout the country on a variety of topics, but more importantly, we're providing legislators with the information and ammunition they need to stand up and fight for individual freedom, to fight back against the ESG agenda, to fight back against big tech censorship and all the other topics that we hold near and dear. Mm -hmm. You produced a map of the U.S. showing the state's positions on ESG in which only California, Maryland, and Maine are totally for it. How is that going with your efforts to go against ESG? I think our efforts are going quite well. This is a new topic in the sense that just four or five years ago in 2018, so I guess four years ago, Heartland produced a policy study on ESG that went in depth about the threat, what it entailed, how it is actually violating the fiduciary duty of finance companies because they're not funding according to the best investments, but according to their social, political, cultural philosophy. And hardly anybody noticed or paid attention because ESG hadn't burst onto the scene. But in the last year or two, ESG has burst onto the scene. So state Mm -hmm. legislators, they understand that this is a huge threat and a problem that needs to be addressed. They don't have much background or experience on the topic. So we provide that information to them. Now this year, ESG bills 
have advanced in, I forget the exact number, but I believe it's about 35, give or take a few states, some more successfully than others, which is quite remarkable considering this is really the first year that the topic has been on the agenda because there's so many, so many topics that state legislators deal with. We held a conference, a summit, just this past month in Dallas, Texas. We brought together legislators from around the country and those that were most active and had been most successful. This was an iron sharpening iron where we didn't so much lead a discussion as we brought legislators together to moderate and facilitate a discussion among the legislators so that they can hone their ideas. This is what works. This is what doesn't work. This is where you're gonna get your pushback. This is how you defeat it. And now they go back to their states and they're prepared for the January 2023 legislative session to have more of an impact even than this year so that there will be laws in place that will either forbid state government from investing with the finance institutions that pursue an aggressive ESG agenda, or if possible, to make it such that you cannot discriminate against state businesses, businesses in your state based upon ESG factors. Mm-hmm. So, so there's 35 states that you reference, approximately 35. They're the ones that are going forward with anti-ESG legislation? Yes, indeed. And mm. so it can start with a bill that's been filed. Then you need to have the leadership of your party. Well, first, you, you need to have a state where, unfortunately, it's fallen along partisan lines. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be a Republican or Democrat issue. It should be, are you for the land of the free? It used to be, again, when I was a child growing up, Democrats were so proud of supporting freedom, free speech, freedom of everything. But you have to have your party leadership in control and liking the idea of fighting back and supporting the idea of fighting back. Then you have to get the bill in front of the committee. You have to get the chairman on board. The chairman has to uh, hopefully rally forces to support your bill. If you get it out of committee, then you bring it to the floor. And this is really a good thing in general. It makes it an obstacle for good legislation like this. But in general, it's a good thing. The way that legislators typically operate is they see themselves, uh, at least Republicans do, as their most important thing to do is to kill bad bills. You want to advance good bills, but the point of government is not to create as many bills and laws as possible. The point is to have laws in place that protect freedom and that fight back and form a protective shield against the forces that oppose freedom. So in order to get an ESG bill passed through committee, passed through the House, through the Senate, signed by the governor, you have to build momentum because fortunately, especially among Republicans who would be the ones supporting this, they want to be convinced that if government's going to get involved, it's a good thing. And momentum is building for that. Yeah, it's a great place to stop for a commercial, a very positive note, and a very, very important thing that Harlan's doing. So we'll be right back after the break. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall Vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, 
for 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Surely if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. So you can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. So we're back with James Taylor, president of the Heartland Institute. We were just talking about their super important work in ESG at the state level. So Jay, you had a question for James. Yes, last Sunday, uh, two things occurred that had one good thing in common and otherwise couldn't be more opposite. Uh, Sunday in Indianapolis, they set a record for private jets landing in Indianapolis with rich people watching the Indianapolis 500, really an emblem of democracy and meritocracy, uh, pretty much a wonderful event. That same day in Davos, Switzerland, there were as many private jets taking off and leaving after their meeting of a number of days where their goal was to run the world. These are the billionaires that are really now truly communists, hoping to restructure the world so they will be in in charge of it. What do you think they accomplished? How would you describe this meeting of the World Economic Forum that attracts nothing but filthy rich people and plain old communists to restructure society? What do you think they achieve? That's a great point to discuss. Before answering your question, I'd also point out that last November, I was in Scotland during the United Nations Conference of the Parties, their big climate conference, where they tell the rest of us, the little people, how we have to give up meat, how we can't drive SUVs, how we have to turn down the thermostat in the winter, all these things to fight global warming, give up air air travel. And yet they had planes, private jets lined up from these hypocrite posers who flew in on their private jets to Scotland so that they can have FaceTime showing how concerned they were about climate change. First of all, <laughs> flying an airplane, I mean, that, that's fine because we're not facing a climate crisis. It's no big deal. But if you're going to give the message that we're facing a climate crisis and one of the biggest problems is airplanes, you can't. You don't get to fly in on private jets. Another thing that was interesting was the conference in Scotland was in uh, Glasgow. And where we were uh, with the Heartland Institute, we were in Edinburgh, which is about almost an hour drive away. And so we flew into Edinburgh because what happened is before they announced where the conference would be, they being the United Nations, they locked up all the hotel rooms and everything else so that they would have privileged access. So there was no place for us in Glasgow. We flew into Edinburgh and my taxi driver, as we're driving away from the airport, she points over to the runway and to the tarmac and says, you see that your president's here. And I looked and there's Air Force One. Actually, there were two big planes, two big jumbos like Air Force One. And I said, well, that's odd. I thought that Joe Biden would be flying into Glasgow. And well, as it turns out, Edinburgh is more scenic countryside. It's considered more beautiful. It is. 
And so you had the two jumbo jets with the dozens of SUVs that prayed back and forth. Day after day, they drove the SUVs back and forth on that 60-mile road so that Joe Biden can have a nicer place to stay with all the carbon dioxide emissions of the SUVs that none of us are allowed to have. So it's a height of hypocrisy there. It's the height of hypocrisy in Davos. In Davos, this is Davos is where the World Economic Forum meets every year. Klaus Schwab, who formed the World Economic Forum, who is a self-avowed socialist. So you know that means he loves Venezuela. He loves communist China. He loves communist Cuba. Cuba. This is what he's seeking to impose. This has long been something that Klaus Schwab and his inner circle have discussed. And you can go back and find these discussions. They weren't out in the big spotlight because everyone said, well, listen, that'll never happen. This is just your wishful far left thinking. But they talked about using the World Economic Forum. They talked about gathering leaders, economic leaders, political leaders, cultural leaders from around the globe and getting them all on sync to replace, as we discussed earlier, shareholder capitalism with stakeholder capitalism. In other words, socialism. This has been something that has that they have been trying to impose or at least planning to impose for decades. And then finally, just in the past couple of years, that's when the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab determined the time has come. We have built enough momentum around these far left causes that we can push this agenda. And that is something that at the World Economic Forum, at their 2020 planned meeting, this is something that they had mapped out. It's on their website, the great reset of capitalism. This is their agenda. It's not something people walking around with tinfoil hats are talking about with no reason. This is what they've been planning for decades. And now it's upon us and we must act to preserve and defend our freedom. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Very different to what Gandhi wanted. He said, live simply so other people simply may live. Instead, they're living rich and telling us to live simply. Well, yes. and, And here's another piece of hypocrisy and irony. So I hated to purchase the Klaus Schwab book on the Great Reset that he published in 2020, because I don't want to give any money to him, but I need to know what the enemy of freedom is thinking and planning. So I went to purchase the book, and the irony was when I went on to Amazon.com, figuring, okay, I'll probably be able to get the Kindle version for free because you don't have the publishing costs. And at the Heartland Institute, for example, our recent publication, Climate at a Glance for Teachers and Students, you can purchase the book, a hard copy of the book. There are publishing costs involved. It's about $10. But if you just want a digital copy, it's free. We don't charge people for it. We want to get our ideas out. We want to argue for truth. Klaus Schwab, you can't even get a digital copy for free. you got to pay him money. So here he is talking about the evils of capitalism, and you have its leader out there milking all his people, charging money so that you can see what they're doing behind the scenes. And yeah. by the way, with, this, with his book, The Great Reset of Capitalism, this was published in the spring of 2020. And it was talking about the pandemic just a few months after COVID hit. He's got a book all ready to go on it. This is something that they have been planning as far as how they want to structure society. COVID became the excuse. They said up front before COVID hit, Climate change was going to be the justification and the need for the great reset of capitalism. Quickly and conveniently, they said, oh, wow, here's something we can use even more effectively. It was ready to go. Let let me describe for our listeners. I did obtain a Kindle version of Klaus Schwab's book. 
And I found it was only possible to read the th first 35 pages because it was absolutely ghastly. But in 35 pages, it laid out the disaster that these communists are trying to create in our world. And the next hundreds of pages just elaborated on everything that was already said in 35 pages. I can't imagine any listener to our program could get through the whole book, and I don't advise it. But if you could get the Kindle version one way or another and read the first 35 pages, you'll no longer take what's going on calmly. Uh, you'll no longer argue what James and Tom and I are talking about, that these people are communists under other names and that they're trying to run our lives and our entire country. And so there is value in that. Yeah, we have to be informed in order to put up our best defense of individual liberty and freedom. And this also calls to mind how important it is not to give in. There are some folks who say, well, our best response messaging wise, public relations wise, when we are fighting the political agenda put forth by the environmental left, climate alarmism, well, what we should be doing, what, what sells better is a message that, well, these are our conservative solutions. Here's how we're going to have a conservative plan to restrict carbon dioxide emissions, whether it's taxation or whatever other program they have, spending big taxpayer money on R&D, taxing to death conventional energy. Those aren't conservative programs. But anyway, the point is this. If you concede the initial premise that we're facing a climate crisis. Now the question is, are you enabling the Klaus Schwab's of the world, the AOC's of the world, to implement their hard socialist agenda? Because if you say, I, let me just digress for a moment. AOC, the first bill she filed when she got into Congress, it was the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal was about 10 percent addressing energy and environment issues and 90 percent dealing with authoritarian socialist programs that have nothing to do with the environment. That was their Trojan horse. And when people have said we have a conservative plan, I forget the exact quote, but I'll paraphrase it. I have it in one of my slides in my PowerPoint. But her message to people is this. So wait a second. The world is going to end in 10 years. And you're saying that it costs too much to have real effective solutions. You'll get destroyed if your messaging is, well, we'll have conservative solutions that are slightly less costly. No, if you concede the false premise that we're facing a climate crisis, you are going to get stuck with this reshaping of our society in the authoritarian socialist image. It's inevitable. We cannot concede that initial premise. We're about to enter a, a winter of many blackouts around the country and people, I think, will begin to see the fallacies and the absurdity of the Green New Deal. Yeah, in Illinois, for example, where the Heartland Institute's offices are, it's funny, you go back 30 years, it was a purple and, and perhaps leaning Republican state. Now it's just so far to the left. So last year, the state legislature passed at the urging of the governor, so the governor signed these bills, uh, passed legislation that bans coal power plants after 2035. Not, not, not that you can't build them. No, you must shut down the ones that have already been paid for, that are functioning properly, that are providing our baseload energy. And the same legislation bans natural gas power plants after 2045. 
Now, the utilities that are operating these power plants are now stuck where they can't add any more of these plants when you have more electricity demand because you have to shut them down. Even the ones they have now, they can't just shut them off all at once. You have to start the process now. So now you have the electric grid operators, energy economists saying, in Illinois, we're not talking California, in Illinois, expect rolling brownouts, perhaps blackouts. They say the same thing in Michigan. That is the inevitable consequence when you enact and enforce the anti-energy agenda of the climate left. I encourage people, go to the heartland.org website and support them. There's a donate button in the upper right-hand corner because they're doing very, very important work. So besides donating to Heartland and helping you do this work, James, what do you think the average person can do? Should they be boycotting, for example, some of these large organizations? Well, first of all, thank you for the message about funding Heartland. Believe me, we put every dollar we get to the best use possible, and uh, we greatly appreciate the opportunity to have an impact fighting for freedom. And that leads to your question about what else can you do? I think the most important and effective thing that people can do, and they don't often see the value of this, contact your legislators, your representatives, your state officials, your congressional representatives, but especially at the state level. In talking with legislators and other state policymakers, I've heard more than once from different people that when they hear from one person on a topic, in their mind, they multiply that times a thousand because Mm -hmm. very few people take the time to express what really concerns them. And if somebody is taking the time to do that, they know there are many, many others out there who think the same thing and haven't done so. How did you get involved with Glenn Beck? And I believe it was Justin Haskins and Donald Kendall that helped him write the book. I don't think your staff has gotten so much enough credit for it, but uh, tell me how that relationship began because Glenn Beck has certainly created a huge following. That's one of my favorite stories. Back a few years ago, I am going to guess it might have been in 2019, uh, 2018 or 2019, give or take a year. We at the Heartland Institute, we decided that we were going to have a workshop at the CPAC annual meeting. And if you're invited by CPAC to participate in one of their panel discussions, of course, that's great. You go and you can speak. But to have a workshop, you have to invest some of your own funding to do so, to have that stage. And we decided it was important to do so as we were in the early stages of our Stopping Socialism project. So Justin Haskins and Donald Kendall gave a presentation at that workshop, took questions and answers. And it so happened that a gentleman by the name of Glenn Beck was attending CPAC that year, was looking at the program, saw that we had our workshop going. There were other workshops going on at the same time, plus the main stage, but He was intrigued by the topic and came to watch Justin and Donnie give their presentation. And afterwards, he said, you guys nailed it right on the head. We need to work together. I need to utilize you. And since that time, they have worked hand in hand. And Glenn has been fantastic as far as alerting people about the truth about the ESG agenda, about the truth the underlying pernicious motives of the socialism movement. It's not warm and fuzzy, it's authoritarian hard left. 
even to the extent of just in this past year, Glenn Beck traveled to Idaho and met with legislators and told them about the importance of passing an ESG bill. I mentioned earlier that we brought state legislators together in Dallas this past month. It was Glenn Beck who allowed us to use his Mercury One Studios free of charge and said, here, bring them here. And so you don't have to rent hotel space, conference space. And Glenn spoke with the legislators. And by the way, he is such a humble, kind-hearted, giving individual. So we've had that wonderful relationship. Uh, Justin and, and Donnie, especially Justin, have assisted Glenn writing his best-selling books. He has two of them that touch on this topic. And we just hope that that relationship will continue. And yes, Glenn has fired up the base. When Glenn Beck goes on air and mentions this topic, ESG, and he's done so, and he's mentioned the Heartland Institute in our work, our phone lines just ring up. State legislators give us a call and say, hey, I'm hearing from my constituents that we need to address ESG. And I'm hearing that the Heartland Institute is heavily involved. Let's work together. That's a true story that's happened many times here in the past six, seven months because of Glenn Beck. So we're very happy to work with him. That's wonderful. You know, the topic that's, of course, near and dear to my heart is climate change. And Heartland is easily the most powerful voice in attempting to expose that fraud. And you know, I use these climate change reconsidered reports constantly in my articles and interviews. Tell us about other things that you're doing to help expose the climate change fraud. Well, thank you, Tom. And I have to say that you're being humble yourself because ICSC, your work, Jay's work going back many years, has been truly instrumental fighting back against climate alarmism. And, and of course, much of my work was done with Jay when we would co-author editorials and speak together conferences and still do. What we've done recently, and thank you for pointing out the Climate Change Reconsidered series, we have made it an effort to try to reach what I refer to as, as little league moms. Uh, people who maybe are just talking with their neighbors at backyard barbecue. They see something on CNN that a hurricane's about to strike Texas. Oh, and they blame global warming. And it's easy to just accept that narrative. So we're trying to reach them in ways that they will pay attention to. So we're giving, uh, giving a few different avenues to people to learn about the topic. So first of all, we have a website, Climate at a Glance, from which we just published our book, Climate at a Glance for Teachers and Students. What we did is we took the 30 or 40 topics that are most frequently discussed regarding global warming, hurricanes, tornadoes, droughts, crop production whatever the issue may be, coral reefs. And we say we want a one-pager, two-pager at most, a few bullet points at the top, so in 15 seconds, you can understand what the truth is. Underneath a short summary that explains it a little more compellingly with the citations and links, and then a compelling visual graphic so you can see it. So if you wanna spend 15 seconds on the hurricane page, you'll understand that hurricanes are not getting any worse, if anything, they're becoming less frequent and severe, and that even the United Nations itself admits it cannot find any signal of worsening hurricanes, and yet the news media say the opposite. So if you go to climateataglance.com, you can have those topical summaries on every topic. A couple other things we're doing, we have a website, climaterealism.com, and what we do is our staff, we do a Google News search each day for climate change, and we look to see what the media's coordinated message is because they have a scare or two or three of the day and they coordinate. You'll have four or five outlets that on the same day report about, they might say, 
polar bear populations are being threatened when in fact they're growing. Anyway, whatever the topic is each day that is getting all the media attention, we on that same day, we put together what the truth is and we publish an article on climate realism. So again, if you're hanging around the barbecue at your kid's little league game and the topic comes up because they saw it on CNN, you know what the truth is. And then finally, one thing we're doing, and I say finally, there are others, but finally that comes to mind as my top three at the moment, uh, Anthony Watts, meteorologist Anthony Watts, published a paper, a study on temperature stations throughout the United States back in about 2010. And he found that they were horrendously flawed. Many of the temperature measuring stations were located in places like in parking lots, above barbecue pits, and other things that had extreme false warming signals. So now yeah. a decade later, after these were, they were supposed to be fixed, he's going back and he's documenting that they still haven't been fixed. Mm, wow. I'm going to include all three links, Climate at a Glance, ClimateRealism.com, as well as Anthony Watts's work uh, under the podcast when it goes online on Monday. So people who are listening who can't write these down fast enough, they'll all be there on Monday. Thank you. Anthony's, Anthony's new study will be published most likely around mid-July, but you can certainly link to the old study and see what all the problems were and then know in advance when the new one comes out, if anything, they appear to have gotten worse. Yeah. Is Heartland, uh, James, doing anything to undo the Supreme Court decision that carbon dioxide is a contaminant? And obviously all our listeners know that every one of us exhale carbon dioxide all day long and uh, it's considered a, a pollutant. It was a, a, a decision by the Supreme Court based on fallacious information presented by EPA that literally wanted to take control of the environment by controlling all emissions of carbon dioxide. And that's where they really got the impetus to stop the use of fossil fuel for whatever their reasons. It will not, it can't be done. But Mr. Trump considered going after the Supreme Court and undoing it, but he decided, frankly, he didn't have enough political capital to do it. Does Heartland have any plans to tackle that problem in the future? Well, I hope so. Uh, as you know, Jay, because we were working together on this when the Massachusetts versus EPA Supreme Court case uh, was decided that Heartland filed its own memorandum with the Supreme Court, its own brief, pointing out the, the true facts, the Supreme Court. However, I think basically to try to appease what they thought public opinion would be, gave a five to four decision, giving EPA the authority to regulate carbon dioxide as pollution, which is preposterous. But regardless, as you mentioned, under Donald Trump, really, they, Trump wouldn't even need to reverse the Supreme Court opinion. He'd just need to have the EPA decide, OK, we have the authority to regulate carbon dioxide as a pollutant, but it's not a pollutant. So we're not going to regulate it. And we were hoping that would be the case. Again, I think politics within EPA trumped common sense and sound science. But there are right now, there are challenges. The state of Louisiana, for example, is challenging the Biden administration's actions on climate change, which could indeed lead to the Supreme Court reconsidering Massachusetts versus EPA. And it's one of those where I wish we were doing more. As, as Tom mentioned earlier, the donate button, we only have so many resources. We can only have so many people that we can have on staff working on these issues. And that's going to be determined by our funding. So right now that's one that we're involved in to some degree. We've been consulting with attorneys 
for working with Louisiana. We've been consulting with Louisiana officials. It's one of the things that breaks my heart that I cannot be doing more with and for Heartland, but hopefully we will. Hopefully we will when the resources materialize. One issue we haven't covered that I know Heartland has been very uh, active in is uh, health care. Where do you stay? I mean, in fighting Obamacare and, and uh, all the things that make uh, hospitalization, all medicine more expensive than it is actually overseas, does Heartland have a, a plan or a, a way to implement opinion in the state legislators or at the federal level? Absolutely. If you go to our Heartland website or you can do a Google search, an internet search for an American Health Plan and Heartland Institute, that's the title, the American Health Plan that we have proposed. And by the way, Justin Haskins, the same person who's fighting back against socialism, he and uh, Sam Karnick on our staff were the two uh, people more than others and, and many people contributed, but really who stood above and above the crowd putting this together. And basically it is a plan to eliminate Obamacare. And while at the same time, understanding what people think are important to have, some of the concerns they had that led them to be susceptible to being led astray by the messaging and politicking of Obamacare. Free market reforms that will make sure that healthcare is accessible and affordable. And by the way, remember the biggest selling point, there were two big selling points for Obamacare. One was to cover people who otherwise were not covered by health insurance. How did that go? You still have the issue where you have many, 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 many Americans who don't have health insurance. More importantly, they told us this would be best for Americans as a whole, especially people who, haven't, who have health insurance, because it's going to drive down health insurance rates. How did that go? Here's what I know from personal experience. Right now, I pay three times as much in health care premiums than I did before Obamacare, and I'm only getting about 10% of the coverage. I don't think I'm the only person in that situation. So yeah, we definitely need to fight back against what happens when government takes control of an industry sector, when socialism, medical socialism, socialist medicine becomes the norm. And this is something that Heartland is fighting very strongly against. We have a monthly publication, Healthcare News, that we send to all elected officials at the state and federal level in the United States. It's a monthly publication. It's much like Environment and Climate News, Jay, that you were the managing editor of and also contributor for. We send that out each month to legislators with summaries of what's happening both politically and medically regarding healthcare issues that support an agenda for defending freedom in medical in the medical industry. That's just the tip of the spear, but we're doing everything regarding free market healthcare as far as tactics, strategy, and battle plans that we're also doing in climate change. Same type of agenda, making sure legislators are armed to fight for freedom in medical care. Mm, it's amazing how many of these different topics all have that common ingredient, fighting for freedom against socialism. Yes, and unfortunately, it's a, it's a fight that we have to be ever vigilant in because the authoritarian left will never give up, at least not that I can see in my life. No, no, you're exactly right, James. They will never. It's really a battle of good versus evil, and uh, evil has always been authoritarian. Uh, it has been communist for well over a century, 
And the battle will never end. There's a saying, I don't remember who said it first, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And everybody at Heartland and organizations like it, Tom and I, more than anything else, encourage people to fight, to be part of the army against authoritarianism. And you described it. I mean, write letters to your newspaper, make calls to your your congressman. I, I've been on the lecture circuit most of my life, and I've always told an audience when I'm talking about freedom, which we are here, uh, try to dedicate two hours a month to doing something, whether it's talking to your friends at a social engagement or a, a sporting event or writing letters to a newspaper or calling in to a radio station where you can correct uh, errors that are made. But two hours a month, actually, it'll make you feel better. And there are millions of us out there. You put together those small contributions and you have something really valuable. It's so important, the work that you're doing with ICSC, the work that Heartland's doing. Jay, you touched on the point that you can talk with your friends and neighbors. One of the reasons we launched Climate at a Glance and Climate Realism was having in mind people when they go to Little League games or at their barbecues in the neighborhood, people, if they're only getting one side, one-sided information, there needs to be somebody speaking the truth. There needs to be somebody who can say, hey, here's something maybe you didn't consider. Here's what I just saw on the ICSE website. Here's what I just learned at Climate at a Glance. And even those conversations, if all you're hearing is one-sided propaganda and you have no reason to question it, sometimes it takes just one voice to plant a little seed of doubt against the propaganda, a seed of truth that can make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. On that note, we have to end off. And I encourage people, go to the heartland.org website. Our guest today has been James Taylor, president of the Heartland Institute. So this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story. <laughs>